Hi everyone and welcome to episode 12 of For Fat's Sake, the ferrets podcast about misinformation and fact checking. I am your host, Ali Bryan, and with me as always, the sonic sovereign, Paul Dobson. How are you doing, Paul? I'm not bad, I'm not bad. That took me a little bit of time to work out. It wasn't your usual format of those puns, but... Well, we're 12 in now, aren't we? So what am I supposed to do? I mean, it has got a shelf life, this, hasn't it? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. It's just no. going to become less and less understandable to the general public, which is what this <laughs> podcast is all about. Exactly. So what have we got coming up this week, Ali? We've got an interview with Sam Doak. He's a journalist and fact checker at Logically, the fact checking organization. Uh, used to work for Greater Govan Hill magazine, so uh, one of our friends of the podcast. We spoke to him about the unrest in France and specifically how the far right in the UK has been using disinformation about the conflict to spread their messages. We've also got a fact check. The recently announced departing MP, Mary Black, we fact-checked a claim she made about Scottish borrowing powers. And what's in Paul's curiosity corner this week, Paul? Well, Ali, we're going to be discussing the prospects of Orkney seceding from the UK and joining our wealthy neighbours in Norway. Interesting. Will it happen? Find out at the end of the podcast. I'm Sam Doak. I'm a fact checker with Logically Facts. We cover misinformation quite generally, so conspiracy theories, propaganda, and we kind of do that for a mix of like fact checking, investigations, and analysis. We're here to talk about the uh, situation, uh, the unrest in France in recent weeks. Um, just for our listeners, could you give us a wee like pricey of what has been happening and what sparked it off? On June 27, um, a teenager. Um, Niall Merzouk uh, was killed by uh, French police. Uh, there was a video of this incident. Um, this sparked the nationwide protests, um, which um, over time developed into, into rioting across the country. Okay, and these sort of developing situations and fast-moving situations like this one has been are kind of perfect for mis- and disinformation to spread. So where has that spread been focused? Has it been mostly online or has it been on other platforms? Uh, mostly online as far as we've seen, um, particularly on social media platforms, um, also on some of the kind of junkier kind of um, far-right uh, news sites, but mainly um, social media users um, across particularly TikTok, um, Twitter and Facebook. Could you give us a sense of why uh, these situations are always such a kind of hotbed for missing disinformation, these sort of ongoing situations? Yeah, sure. So in situations like this, what you have often is a combination of like a large volume of footage, um, a, f- a quickly moving situation, which means there's not much clarity what's going on on the ground. And that kind of leaves an opening for misattributed footage or footage with um kind of wrong explanations attached to them to mm. spread quite rapidly before there is any, any proper coverage or fact-checking. Um, yeah, basically people don't know what's going on. They see something flashy and they share it. Um, also, like, these events attract a lot of interest, which really drives engagement. So we see actors trying to boost kind of followings and engagement by um, associating themselves with the, with the narrative. I think like it's fair to say that a lot of the sort of misinformed fake news that's been spread around the French 
unrest or uh, riots or how they've been variously named um, have been spread by the far right. Is that correct to say? And why would that be the case? Yeah, that's correct. So um, what you have in the protests and riots is a lot of um, these events have occurred in quite diverse areas, um, often more low-income areas of France, um, particularly because they're in response to, to police violence. This is really kind of presented an opening for some actors to frame the events as largely or wholly driven by migrants. There's no evidence to support the idea that most of this or all of it is perpetuated by migrants. It's basically an opportunity to frame these communities as like inherently dangerous, inherently violent, as a threat to quote unquote traditional Europe. Um, so we have that from groups in the UK kind of um, pointing to what's happened and um, spreading narratives around France has fallen. Uh, the Europe is a garden is um, a phrase that's been used a lot. This idea that um, a walled off Europe is being encroached upon by these people that are bringing kind of violence and disorder. So basically by framing these events as largely driven by migrants, they can try and um, frame these communities as threats across Europe and say, like, look, they're coming here. This could happen again. It sort of fits into the kind of playbook that the far right uses and mm-hmm. has used for, you know, time immemorial, really. Could you give us a few examples of misinformation that's being used by the far right? There's been a few kind of broad themes. Uh, One of the biggest themes that isn't specific to the far right is to share misattributed videos and false narratives to try and overplay how serious or how violent these events have been. So, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, we've seen um, videos of fires and explosions in different countries being kind of like taken and presented as um, this is what was happening in France seen videos of like escaped zoo animals and stuff, which again did not occur during the unrest. And also pictures of people that have been claimed to be migrants, again, without mm-hmm. evidence, like carrying firearms, again, misattributed to to the riots in France. So basically trying to build this picture of a country that's descended into lawlessness and chaos. Specifically around migrants, we have noticed videos, a particular one was like a robbery in California it's a video showing a robbery of a jewellery store. This was taken um, and misrepresented as migrants in France robbing a jewellery store mm-hmm. during during riots. You basically see a lot of these. Um, just today, a video surfaced of uh, Algerians in a pro-democracy protest. And this has been misattributed to the recent protests saying, look, Algerians are climbing on our monuments and taking over France. Yeah, it's basically anything to, to falsely claim that these communities are using this as an opportunity to take over the country. I think like what a lot of outside observers of France will be interested in is the way that it's playing politically within France. Obviously, France has a strong far-right movement led by Marine Le Pen, um, which has sort of got quite close to power in the past. So do you think that the, the protests or the riots are pushing more people into the arms of the far right? Um, it's hard to say. It's a lot of the time when the far right present these kind of narratives, they are successful in driving engagement. Um, but a lot of the time this doesn't translate to an increase in like real world support or, mm-hmm. or votes. There have been attempts to play up Le Pen as like a potential savior, um, particularly among like the British far right. Um, Britain first is particularly supportive of Le Pen. But it's 
there's there's no evidence as of yet that this is going to translate to like a surge in support for for the far right. So as you said earlier, like a lot of the video and photos which have been shared have been real videos, but used or attributed in the wrong context. Why do you think that's been so common? I guess there's two aspects to that. It's um, well, the first thing is the nature of these videos and photographs. They're very dramatic. Um, Sometimes in cases such as escape zoo animals and stuff, people also find them um, funny. Uh, they're, just, they're just very like shareable pieces of media. Um, the kind of second aspect of this is like people are really easily taken in by that kind of thing when they're told like this is the context this video was taken in. It's a lot of people don't take the time to check where these videos are from, which can actually be really difficult. It's why you have specialized journalists like, like us that um, do that for a living um it's particularly in when they're taken from a different country as well um and presented to an audience of like a third country so you have a video taken in say um florida it's presented to a british audience as shown somewhere in france the likelihood that someone's going to have um the cultural con- context to be able to easily identify that um just without research is quite low um, for an example, um, a lot of the misinformation we see coming out of China, like gets, um, that's, it's often very effective because a Western audience will see a video in China and they won't have the, like the cultural knowledge to really understand what's going on. They won't have the language yeah. skill to easily know what's be able to read signs, like, uh, understand language. So it's really easy to kind of pass things off from different cultures and languages to um, to audiences, say, in the UK. One of the things you mentioned which is really interesting, I think is important, is the idea of this mis- and disinformation being used in a third country or so far right, basically outside of France, utilizing this as a way to build, uh, build brand or promote their ideals. Why do you think, for example, that the UK far right has been so like focused on it and why do you think it's been quite successful in terms of them building engagement? Well, kind of put simply, the UK far right have been quite keen to this because it, it does work for them for building yeah. um, for building audiences. Like you look at, um, for an example, Britain first to been among the most active groups posting um, this kind of material um, frequently um, misinformation as well. Paul Golding has been one of the, um, it's, their leader has been one of the biggest kind of um, most high profile spreaders of like just fake, like misattributed videos, like during this um, period. At, on the 27th, um, at the start of this unrest, Golding had 81,000 um, followers on Twitter. Like a week later, he has 104. That's like an increase right. of like a quarter. So it's a really effective way for them to drive engagement and build their online audience. Like this is something that they've known for a long time, like uh, back in. 2017, Britain First had 1.7 million followers on Facebook. They know how to yeah. build this kind of audience. But I think what's also crucial to understand is this doesn't automatically translate to real-world support. Um, right. Britain First has never won, like, um, to my knowledge anyway, like a, an election. Um, they have like a very small group of activists. But building these online audiences kind of allows them to present as like a bigger, more serious entity than, than they are. And that's why it's so important to them because it might be like 
what, like 40, 50 people, let's say. Um, but if you have like a, a Facebook account with a million followers or a Twitter account with 100,000 followers, it makes you look like a serious entity and um, people will start taking you more seriously. Yeah, but I suppose there's also the element as well is that where you don't, like you don't, it doesn't necessarily need to, for them to have, um, to get like electoral support off the back of it for it to be like hugely kind of quite influential in the sort of culture and influential in the way that people think in the UK, if you see what I mean. Um, and like the, you know, the, you know, the protests outside of the um, hotel, asylum hotels, for example, they had the one up in Renfrew and, you know, in Liverpool, like a lot of that is spread by the same people. And, you know, it's that misinformation that creates this atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. And to say that it won't translate into electoral success is missing the point in a sense, because these are narratives that have inherent harm attached to them. Like someone doesn't need to vote a certain way for like the narrative, like migrants burned down Paris um, to have harm. That's why we've at Logically Facts, we've spent so much time on this particular event, because it is quite clearly being used to quite successfully, apparently convince some people that um, these groups are a threat to, to Western societies. So this week, Ali, you've been checking a claim from SNP MSP Mary Black about the Scottish government's borrowing powers. So can you just quickly outline what the claim Black made was and on what platform? Yeah, so she appeared on uh, BBC Question Time last Thursday and was having a debate with a journalist from The Telegraph about Scottish water and privatisation. And she suggested that Scotland lacked borrowing powers to make policy decisions that improve the lives of those who live in Scotland. What she actually said was, the Scottish Parliament has no borrowing powers whatsoever. All right, okay, and you found that claim to be false, so why? Uh, because they do have some borrowing powers. Makes um, sense. We know the Scottish Government's powers are limited by devolution, and a lot of the economic levers are still reserved to Westminster, uh, but it does have some limited borrowing powers. Uh, the Scottish Government can borrow for resource spending, that's like day-to-day running of services spending, and it can borrow on capital spending, which covers big stuff like buildings and infrastructure projects. In resource spending, it's only able to borrow money to account for errors in forecasting or cash management. Uh, This can be up to 600 million if there's a very specific Scotland-based economic shock. Um, But it does mean the Scottish government can't decide to just borrow extra money to put extra funding into the NHS, for example, unless it's due to an error in forecasting that makes up the grant that they get from Westminster. On capital spending, there's a lot more flexibility. Scotland can borrow up to £450 million per year with a cap of £3 billion in total capital debt. Obviously, that's a lot less than the UK government, which is able to borrow um, much more freely. Yeah, so as you say, the Scottish government's powers on this are considerably limited uh, compared to the UK government. So what powers does Westminster have and why are borrowing powers important? The UK government is crucially able to borrow for discretionary resource funding. So mm-hmm. that means that when there's shortfalls in um, cash or there's um, specific things that happen that mean that the UK government might want to put in some new bit of funding, new bit of um, resource spending, then they can do. So, for example, over the last year or so, the UK government's been able to borrow to help fund the money that's gone to people with to help with their energy bills. So it means that they're able to react to um, things like cost living crisis or you know specific energy bill crisis or you know things like covid and all the sort of things that can happen whereas the scottish government is far more reliant on 
the UK government spending on that front. So they're not able to really borrow huge amounts of money to that to like underwrite specific policy priorities they might have. So say if they wanted to put more money to the NHS, they've got to find that from various different budgets rather than borrow money. Okay, so as we mentioned, the claim was made on this occasion by Mary Black, who has since been on a rival minor podcast announcing she won't be standing to be an MP at the next election. So mm. tell us, Ali, is this your first scalp? Is this the first political career ended by a ferret fact check? I think it would be far too cocky for us to take credit, full credit for that uh, on this one. I think it's probably an accumulation of all of the fact checks we've done over the years. Of course, yeah. So Ali, we frequently discuss Scotland's constitutional future on this podcast, but instead on this week's edition of Paul's Curiosity Corner, it's news about a Scottish island, Orkney's place in the UK. So can you explain what this story is all about? Yeah, so as um, many of the media have been breathlessly reporting, uh, proposals were put forward on Orkney Islands Council to explore alternative forms of governance for the islands um, this included uh, looking at its nordic connections crown dependencies and other options for greater subsidiarity and, auto- and autonomy uh, this motion was put forward by the council leader james stockton who says that orcadians are annoyed by lack of funding from central government um, particularly around issues around its ferry fleet okay so just before we dive in any further can orkney mm. leave the uk and become part of norway well, you know, all these things to do with constitution are changeable, but it seems unlikely. There hasn't been a specifically strong push uh, for Acadian independence from the UK, and the UK government hasn't been moved to allow any kind of succession vote or anything. Um, it appears to be more of a hypothetical motion to sort of highlight a perceived lack of respect and funding rather than a genuine attempt to like push an imminent vote on the matter. Okay, so does does the council leader actually have any backing from Orcadians or is this sort of just a bit of grandstanding? Well he claims he does and there have been grumblings about a lack of support uh, from Orcadians for many years. It's not the first time that the council voted uh, for a similar type of thing and the motion he put through was voted through by councillors on Tuesday. So he appears to have some backing from Orcadians for the idea that the, the current situation with the Scottish government and the UK government is not serving people uh, in the islands well. Okay, and what are the historic links between Orkney and other Scottish islands and Norway? Well, Orkney was part of Norway from 875. Uh, it was used as a base for uh, Norse incursions into mainland Britain. So that's the Vikings, just to... Yeah, that's that's them, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was only actually given back to Scotland in 1468 after it was pledged by Christian I, King of Norway, as security against the payment of the dowry for his daughter Margaret, who was to be married to James III, King of Scotland. So essentially as a kind of big wedding gift. Okay, so it gave it away, but has Norway said whether it now wants Orkney back? They're keeping their cards close to their chest on this one, I think. A spokesman for Norway's foreign ministry told Reuters, this is a domestic and constitutional British matter. We have no view regarding this motion. So hard to know whether or not they want Orkney at the moment. What about the Scottish government? Has it said anything? Because it's normally pretty keen on pushing the rights of self-determination of different areas. Yeah, well, the, the Scottish government is obviously, uh, they, they want Orkney to stay. And most of the kind of comment they've made about it has been bigging up the various funding and support packages they've put in place. 
for the islands. I've not seen anything from the Scottish government that has suggested they would massively be in favour of uh, Orkney leaving. We've seen around the world like numerous instances where you know regions or countries have had independence movements but there's probably less precedent for countries leaving one bigger state and joining another so Mm. are there any examples of that across the world well as is so often the case when you're looking for kind of unusual constitutional and geographical movements british colonial history is a good place to start um one place which i found research in is christmas island that uh ceased to be a British colony in 1955 and was transferred to Australia. Uh, The same thing happened to the Cocos, or sometimes Keeling Islands, as they're known, at the same time. A weird one you might not have heard of is Pheasant Island. It's an uninhabited river island in the Bidasoa River, which is located between France and Spain. And the control over the island switches every six months between France and Spain. Um, I'm not sure if that's something that the Orcadians will be exploring. That's all I've got time for for this week's podcast. Thanks so much to Sam for coming on and sharing his uh, insights. Um, make sure you go to Logically for any of your fact-checking around the France unrest. Apologies to anyone offended by my attempt to pronounce that river between France and Spain. I'm not going to try and do it again. But if people want to send correspondence on that or on anything else, what do they do, Paul? That's right, Ali. They can complain to us at Ferret Scott on Twitter, or we have the Facebook page, which is just the Ferret. We're also on LinkedIn and all the other social media platforms. We also have our community forum website, which is community.theferret.scot, where you can get into touch directly with our journalists. Awesome. And if you want to send that directly to me, you can at factcheck at theferret.scot via email. We will see you in two weeks. Bye. Au revoir.